Today, I am joined by one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Lafrique, otherwise known as Leah Capelli. She is a creative powerhouse that I've had the honor to collaborate with on a few projects now, and if you listen to Creative Codex, you've actually heard Lafrique sing already in parts three and four of the Vincent series. She sang all the vocal parts of the main theme, which thread their way through the narrative. Those are episodes 24 and 25. I've been meaning to have a sit-down conversation with Lafrique for years, ever since I started this show. But now, the timing could not be better. She just released an outstanding new EP album called Showgirl, which we'll be talking about and which you have to listen to. The links for that are in the episode details. Or simply head over to Spotify or your preferred music player and search Lafrique. That's L apostrophe F-R-E-A-Q. We're going to start this episode by listening to one of the new songs off of that album, Showgirl. The song is called Take You Down. Then we'll dive into our conversation, get to know Leah, and dig around a bit to understand her creative process. Finally, make sure to stick around through the middle of the episode. We're going to have a little intermission during which Leah shares with us an exclusive and intimate cover of a song about Vincent van Gogh. You won't want to miss it. All right, ready? First song is off her new album, Showgirl. The song is Take You Down by Lafrique. Just a higher gun Taking shots and moving targets for fun Getting your fix from hunting down the young Like a fucking disaster Devil knows 
Today, I'm joined by none other than one of my favorite singer-songwriters, La Freak, otherwise known as Leah Capelli. She's someone that I've followed as an artist for about three years now. I've worked with her in, in various capacities, and I'm just super excited to have her on Creative Codex. We're going to talk about a bunch of interesting stuff that hopefully everyone else will find just as fascinating as we will. And welcome, Leah. Wonderful to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, I mean, I've watched you grow as an artist for the last three years in, in a very quick succession of songs and projects and uh, e even alias names, right, that you, you've now <laughs> taken on. And it's been really my honor to watch all of that, because from the moment that we first worked together on, on a just very small song that I had been producing, I recognized your your talent and the potential there like immediately and thank you so I just want to say I hope this in some way is also just a celebration of who you are and what you bring to the world I really appreciate that I follow you on your journey too and it's really cool to see what you've done with the podcast and with your own music and I'm I'm a big fan thank you thank you yeah so it's been an <laughs> exciting thing and I've, I've wanted to have some kind of sit down with you for over a year now, but our paths just never seem to line up where you are physically and where I am. I, I've stayed in one place those those three years, but you've you've certainly been moving around quite a bit, <laughs> yeah, which, which is impressive in its own right. But uh, just as an example, there was this moment that always comes to my mind uh, when we were working on this that one song, Bloodlust, when I was first kind of getting to know you. And we were in the studio, and I knew you already had all the parts down for the verse and the chorus and such. But there was that bridge section. I don't know if you remember, but we were in the studio. There was that bridge section, and I, I basically hadn't told you anything about what to do there. I just gave you that instrumental like a week or so prior to the studio gig. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I wonder what she's going to do here. I am just kind of going to sit back and see what happens. And... The moment that that section came during the studio recording, you kind of just took it and you kind of soared. <laughs> and I I was just like gobsmacked at just the, the naturalness of, of that, that you were able to take something and without even asking me what I thought beforehand and just nail it, <laughs> killed it. And I was like, wow, this this I've, I've since been awe of you and what you can do uh, from that moment. So I just wanted to tell you that. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And conversely, I tell all my friends about your podcast and I say, this is the only Renaissance man left on earth <laughs> because you can do everything. You can compose, you can draw, you can paint, you can create amazing podcasts. So it's really, really cool. Like I think you have so much going on and it's really cool to see um, how you kind of mesh it all together. 
Thank you. I, I do appreciate that. It's, it, it can be a bit of a whirlwind in itself, like you said, all the different varied interests and stuff. Yeah. But it's funny, yesterday as I was kind of thinking about your music, I was like, I wonder if Leah still has her SoundCloud up. Because it was through your SoundCloud that I originally heard some of your music when, uh, for something that you had responded to, and, and, I, and you had sent me that as some examples. And there was one track in particular, I was like, oh, I hope she still has it up, which was Sally's song. <laughs> I was wondering if you're going to say that. I produced that <laughs> song by myself. It was the first song I ever produced by myself in Logic. And I was just, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even really know how to work a microphone at that point. And, you know, I just, I left it up there. <laughs> I'm so glad you did. I was so glad to listen to it. I listened to it again today. That's awesome. And it holds up well. Hey, it's, it, you're, you're, you're just as talented then. Now you've just kind of blossomed and grown in, in new ways, you know? Thank you. I appreciate that. It, you know, it's funny because I, I look back at that kind of stuff. And at the time I was like so embarrassed that I didn't know how to produce. And I felt like other friends of mine were better than me. And then you go back and you look at that stuff and you're like, there's a beautiful simplicity to that kind of stuff that is really cool. Mm -hmm. And it kind of encourages me to get back to, um, that just very baseline way of creating just, you know, without any, uh, expectations and studio sessions and producers, you know, so it's cool to, to look back. Yeah. Yeah. That with the bare bones elements that something beautiful and interesting can still be created. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was a teenager, I wanted to be the next Chris Cornell. Like I, I thought that I had a voice, even though I, I never, I never went to singing lessons or anything, but just this, this, you know, you're naive as a, as a youngster and such. So I would sing Soundgarden in my parents' basement and howl in my room and so on. So I wonder about you in those, those formative years, I've heard and seen the stories that, you know, you started pretty young singing, but what were your idols, your singing idols growing up? What was the next so-and-so that you were hoping to become? You know, I was, I've always been kind of weird, like musically, I think I have an old soul or I was reincarnated from somebody very, <laughs> very alternative. But since I was probably 12 years old, I wanted to be the next Jeff Buckley. <laughs> and, um, I wasn't really into the music that my peers were listening to in school. I was into like much older stuff. I really got into Sarah Vaughn, Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, the Holy Trinity. Yeah. And then I just, I kind of started getting more into alternative stuff like Elliot Smith, Jeff Buckley. Later on, I really got into Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. I'm a huge fan of them now. So I just, you know, I, I wanted to be somebody that was very truthful in my music. And, you know, obviously Jeff is a great example of somebody that was almost painfully truthful. Mm. And I just, for some reason, that's, that's what really stirs my heart, that kind of music. It just really makes me feel connected to, to their energy. Hmm. So is part of that you think that there's a personal element that connects the listener and the singer, the listener and the songwriter, something about their music that happens in that way? Yeah, I think... It's interesting because at 12 years old, you don't have a ton of life experience of heartbreak and, you know, tragedy and trauma, but there's something I think in their voices that really stirs anyone, any soul that listens. And 
there's something about the inflection and the emotion of the voice, especially for me, Jeff Buckley's. And it's funny because I, I listened to the Vincent um, podcast episode that you did where I had some featured vocals with you. And right after that, I felt compelled to listen to James Blake's cover of Vincent, which is mm. one of my favorite songs of all time. Oh, and yeah. I just was like tears streaming <laughs> down my face in the car. And uh. I was thinking, you know, the inflection of his voice is what really just pulls the emotion out for me. Yeah. You know, that's such a good song too, Vincent, Starry Starry Night. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So good. I'd love to do a cover of that someday. Oh, that would be phenomenal. I would love to hear that. Yeah, there's something in the writing of that. Uh, uh, Don McLean, he kind of has this interesting series of songs that uh, function almost like as eulogies for certain uh, either periods of time or artists. I mean, there's American Pie, which is like a eulogy to like the end of rock and roll era and also Mm -hmm. um, the death of Buddy Holly and such. Uh, There's Vincent. I believe there's one or two more. It's an interesting concept, writing a song as almost like a eulogy to someone. Mm -hmm. I like it. Yeah, I've never tried that before. It would be an interesting experiment. Yeah, yeah. It certainly like hits you emotionally in a very compelling way because you're no longer, you no longer have that perhaps self-conscious element of thinking that you're writing about yourself. And so maybe you can, you can make something that hits emotionally, but is not about you. So you kind of, you know, there's no, no self-awareness going on there. Yeah, you know, what's funny is uh, as I've kind of widened my breadth of the projects that I'm working on, I find it so much easier to write for anybody that's not me. <laughs> and I think, you know, that would be the case maybe with a eulogy type of song is mm. I think we we stop ourselves when we're so creative with our own projects because we want everything to be perfect. And when I'm writing for other people, it just comes out so easily so it would be an interesting experiment for sure. Right, right. Well, that kind of dovetails us into something that I definitely wanted to cover with you. So the singles that you've been releasing so far, they're just they're phenomenal. And they're filled with both this balance of a song that is enjoyable to listen to, that just sounds good in the car stereo, but also hits emotionally. This Le Freak as an alias that you use, do you see that as, as a way to explore certain kinds of emotions or emotional centers inside of you? Is there anything you can speak to on that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because this random guy found me on Instagram and we had a conversation and he asked me why I was hiding behind Le Freak, which I thought was a really interesting question. Hmm. And I think obviously everybody draws their own perspectives from their own experiences, but... Um, I told him that I'm not hiding. It's a vehicle that I use to express these deeper inner emotions that I don't feel like I could really express as Leah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the things that I think I learned from Jeff Buckley is to be just painfully honest. And I try to do that also in a way that feels consumable to people that maybe are listening while they're cooking dinner or, you know, aren't fully paying attention. So they're still enjoying the essence of the song, but if they take a deeper listen, they go, oh, wow, this is about something much deeper that's happened. But, you know, one of the things that I would, one of the criticisms that I would put on on my generation's music these days is that I don't think that there is depth sometimes in most of the popular music. And there's a lot of writers on songs and a lot of intention of just making something blow up rather than looking at the 
underlying emotion of something. Mm. Um, and so I, I work really hard to bring that out, even though it sometimes feels painful, mm. you know? Yeah. I mean, you bring up the idea of, of how modern pop, even dark pop, that, that you know ends up on the radio or, or in some form popular often has more than one songwriter you could, some of these tracks i've seen have like 10 people credited as co-writers and such and yeah perhaps what you're saying uh, along those lines is this idea that the more writers you have the less personal it becomes because now everyone is focused on writing a track rather than kind of conveying something substantial or conveying something personal in that sense. Yeah. And and somehow the personal gets lost even even if that that song started as something from one person's point of view. Yeah, and that's not a knock against people. You know, I remember when um Beck won the Grammy over Beyonce. People were saying they were posting an image of Beyonce and all of the writers that she uses. There, I think there were ten writers or something on her album, and it, Beck's album credits were just Beck. So it was really interesting to see the side by side. Right. Um, but I think both Beyonce and Beck are very valuable and have very unique things to say. So you know, both voices and both artistic visions are needed, I think. Sure. No, absolutely. They, they both have their purpose and their place in society, right? Yeah. Uh, on that topic, do you ever find that if you're working on a song, maybe on the lyrics or as, as it's coming along, that it's getting too personal? Maybe you kind of feel like you've let it all out, but then you have to censor yourself a bit, take somebody's name out or, or something to that effect. Well, it's interesting because I usually start a song with poetry. That's always kind of how I've done it. And and usually it's very stream of consciousness. It doesn't rhyme. It doesn't usually, often make sense. But I'm very, very brutally honest in those. And they sometimes, um, they're uncomfortable because... Mm confronting art can sometimes be uncomfortable. And, um, especially when I was living in New York, I was creating things that were a lot darker and I kind of had to learn how to piece those poems together into a way that was consumable for the average listener. And, and even the first song that I released from this, my upcoming EP showgirl, it's called gimmick. And the poetry that started for that song was incredibly dark mm. um, and and sad. And then we ended up, my co-writer and I, Shana Zaid, ended up building that into a song that was a little bit more empowering and tongue-in-cheek and more upbeat. So I, I don't feel like I edit myself, but I feel like I just kind of refine, like... Was it Hunter S. Thompson that said, uh, write drunk, edit sober? <laughs> <laughs> or somebody That's said that. Certainly sounds, certainly sounds like Hunter. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like my MO is kind of write sad, edit happy. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Well, well I, I kind of noticed that in my own uh, creativity very early on that the pit of, of despair or depression or sadness allows you to reach deeper into some substantial things than just your neutral day-to-day attitude or emotion. It's just more raw because you don't care anymore, right? You just need to get it out in a sense. Yeah. Well, and that's a huge topic of mental health and, and especially in the music industry because I think artists believe that 
they need that despair to create. And mm. I've definitely been one of those people. Um, and so that's why you hear a lot of people saying, I don't want to take medication. I don't want to numb myself out. And then mm. they continue to have these um, episodes or, or they continue to be depressed. And I know so many of my peers and friends that have struggled with that. Um, mm. And they haven't wanted to dilute their their creation. So that's something I've I've gone through as well. And and I've gone through phases of just not writing because I've been happy and felt better, you know? Right. So it's something that I think needs to be addressed more in this industry. Yeah, no, that's really, really interesting. And that kind of calls to mind, well, one, earlier you said you felt like you had an old soul. I, I sometimes, especially when I'm playing the guitar, I feel like I have the soul of like an old bluesman. And yeah. it's just, it's always been something that I'm drawn to as a musical style, even though, you know, it, it's hardly a popular style. But in that sense... Have you got some Robert Johnson in there. <laughs> <laughs> so in that sense, the, the early idea of, of those romanticized blues players was that, you know, that music came out of a really rough life. But progressively, you know, it became a popular form of music. And I think there were a lot of very successful blues players like B.B. Like King or Albert King or uh, these types of guys who were living very well, but they could still play the best damn blues around, basically, right? So the blues mm -hmm. no longer needed to be only from like a tortured soul. And then you have a Jimi Hendrix or something, you know, a rock star who's, who's playing these phenomenal blues tunes. Or you have a John Mayer nowadays. I think there, there, there's perhaps an element of when you develop a maturity to that creative process, maybe you don't need that despair so much anymore. Maybe you understand how to access those things without having to engage with, with, with certain unhealthy perspectives, you know? Yeah. And, you know, um, I mentioned earlier, Nick Cave is one of my favorite creators and he has a really cool process where he just says that he goes to work, he checks in. Mm -hmm. And if he doesn't get anything done that day, or if it sucks, whatever, he did his day of work and then he checks out and goes to work the next day. And I think as creators, we put so much expectation on these like bursts of creativity right. and we don't just have the consistency of working. Right. Um, so his process has really inspired me, but you know, and, and he's the king of, of dark lyrics and dark music. So I feel like he can really at this point in his career, just channel that. And he doesn't really need to be in that headspace all the time. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think what ends up happening is, is similar to like when you see a, a master actor and they, when they're not in their role, but you know they're in the middle of a of a of a shoot, but maybe taking a break, they they get out of character. But then once the camera's rolling again, they kind of they can click back in, and it, it's telling to this idea that you can call upon that well of experience and emotion without having to actively be going through it at all times or during the time, you know, depending on it, you know. Yeah, and we've seen the opposite with people like Heath Ledger who have mm. troubles really taking off the role. And that's where I think we struggle as humans is because we get so deep into these fascinations and into these creative jags that it's it's hard to take it off, you know? I definitely have experienced that in, in some of my own writing and, you know, hopefully people are able to realize that the the process of the creation can just be elongated and you can kind of take it on and off without feeling like you're 
totally drowned in that form of art. <laughs> yeah, you know, I totally get you. I, I know what you mean. And to riff off of that Nick Cave thing, there are plenty of creatives that, that do function that way. Like Stephen King was probably one of the most prolific American writers of the last few decades. He, he approaches yeah. it that way. And he's been doing that for decades where it's basically almost like a nine to five job to him. He sits down and he still loves it, mm -hmm. but he sits down at 9 a.m. after he's dropped the kids off to school, which he said this in, in Rolling Stone interviews and such. He no longer um, uses cocaine as like his writing crutch and such or, or alcohol. He just sits down at 9 a.m. and works until I think about 3 p.m. Like it's not even a nine to five and he does it every day. Mm -hmm. And there's something about the structure of that. And I've, I've heard of other, you know, very prominent figures doing that as well. There's something in that structure that kind of trains your brain. Like, okay, it's writing time. Okay, I've been saving these ideas since yesterday. Now they can come out. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, I started this process called the morning pages, hmm. where you write down three handwritten pages as soon as you wake up in the morning. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be like, I don't want to write over and over again for three pages. But um, it really, really helped my writing. And some mornings I would just start flowing with this poetry that I'm sure was kind of living in my brain as I slept. But I think we shut ourselves off, especially like before I was saying a lot of creatives want so badly to be perfect. Mm. But when we allow ourselves that, that space to just flow on paper, it's so much easier to kind of do it with consistency every single day and just... Um, let it flow. Yeah. And yeah, that reminds me uh, when I had my early uh, teen years of idolizing Kurt Cobain. It was from Kurt Cobain that I learned this really interesting creative trick, which was you just write a song every day. And that's apparently what his goal was to write one song every day, even if it's a shit song. But the fact that you did it yeah. and you have to sometimes get through the shit to get to the gold. And I know that this is also kind of a method that the Beatles used too. They would constantly be writing and with the understanding that most or half of it is going to be shit mm -hmm. and you get through it to get to the gold. Perhaps maybe there's an element of this shit song that influences a really good song later down the road, or it just pushes you in a certain direction. And, and it's, it's really a cumulative process rather than like a one unbelievable song I wrote while in a pit of depression. Mm -hmm. And then I, and then like, hopefully I'll write another one one day, but it's, it's interesting approach. I think that used to be my approach and, and I've been really growing lately on just the consistency and the, and the work method of just sitting down and, and letting whatever comes out come out and not judging it, mm -hmm. being a spectator to the writing and moving on. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very, very healthy approach, I think. That's really good. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so before I forget, I really wanted to get your perspective on this element since we're still talking about songwriting. There's plenty of people who might be listening who are creatives, but they maybe do visual art or they do dance or um, they do another aspect of art that isn't songwriting. Can you take us through some, some version of the process of the original germ, the seed of an idea, all the way through the completion of the song? Like what, what does that look like? For me, usually it's a lot of poetry. The morning pages have definitely helped in creating that schedule, that consistent schedule for myself. Lately, I've been taking myself on artist dates <laughs> where I switch it up. And, you know, I think for so much of my life, I felt like I had to be confined in a studio or in my apartment to, to write 
music, but I've kind of discovered that switching up the environment, going to the park, going to a cool rooftop, going to the bar for a drink and writing, it really influences your perspective and your writing. So I've been kind of allowing myself to do that lately. And then from there, I give it some time and space to breathe. Sometimes I take it to a co-writer to work on it with. Sometimes I um, iron it all out myself. And then usually I take it to a producer. Lately, it's funny that you were saying you listened to the song that I produced. I've been kind of wanting to get back into producing and just at least create the full demo myself so I can get that emotion and that raw intention out mm, into the track. Right. And then, you know, finish it up from there. But it's definitely a process and it takes a long time. I've had to learn a lot of patience with it, especially in this day and age. I want everything to be finished immediately. <laughs> I have right. zero patience. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it, it's a process for sure. If, if you were to guesstimate maybe one, two different songs that, that you've completed and you remember, you recall the original to the completed version, what's the span of time that takes? Is it six months, eight months, two months? What does that look like? It varies for every song. I have a couple songs that I've written years ago that still aren't completed that I think have a lot of merit. And then, you know, my my most recent single, Loud, you know, the producer sent me that track and I worked on it with my co-writer Chris Ayer and we came out with the song finished in I think four or five hours mm. just because we were having fun and I think we weren't judging ourselves and it was nothing too serious and so it really just depends on the track and the emotion of what I'm trying to convey but I do have one song I've been sitting on called When I Die uh, for the last probably year and a half that I just I've been envisioning with a string section so it's mm. been really you know, it's taken a while to figure out how to, how to do that and how to mold that idea together, you know? Right. I can arrange some strings. I'm pretty good at that. I'm classically trained. I know you are. I was just thinking about talk. that. We'll talk. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about That'd that. That'd be awesome. <laughs> so do you keep your ideas in a journal in one place? Is it just like hundreds of pages strewn across, across the floor wherever you live? What does it look like? Oh, my God. You should see. I have a folder of, you know, all my stuff from dating back to when I was living in New York and it's like napkins, random pages yes. from journals, yes. um, anywhere that inspiration strikes and, and it's like sometimes receipts. Cause I was bartending at the time I would yes. write stuff down on the back of receipts and it's kind of cool to go back and just see the, you know, the inkling of a thought and where it was forming. Yes. Yeah. Those little seeds, they, they, uh, they sprout and blossom in very strange ways. Yeah. I probably have a few thousand voice memo recordings of me mumbling or humming something. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny when you listen back to that stuff and it's like three in the morning and you're like, ha, 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 and it's just like yes. this tiny voice. <laughs> I, I go back to my voice memos and I'm like, what, what was I thinking? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them are intelligible. And then, yeah, some of them are like, okay, I must have woken up from a dream and been like, I got to get this down. Uh, uh, uh. And, that, <laughs> and then I hope or I assume I'm going to figure it out later. But yeah, sometimes it's, it's unintelligible. Yeah, I have a couple voice memos from uh, that I've had in dreams. And dream songs are always so interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to do something with those. <laughs> do you ever find that 
uh, this happens to me at times, on your way into sleep, either a nap or, or just uh, in general, your regular sleep, you start to hear music or you hear something that sounds like a song you've never heard. Oh my God. Does that happen to you? That is wild. I've told so many people about this and nobody has said that they, that they hear that. That is so crazy because yes. as I'm falling asleep, I will hear full on symphonies yes. and like, and jazz, sometimes jazz quartets and I, I hear crazy music and it's when I'm still kind of half awake and it always really comforts me. I love hmm. the sound of it, but I always think, you know, if I could just sit up and write this down and then I inevitably I fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. That's so, you know, it happens to me and it makes me wonder one of two things, either, either the, the mind, the brain, you know, has these these recesses and, and hidden abilities for just manifesting things that are so beyond our understanding that it just happens like that and, our, and it's our brain doing it. Or if you want to go metaphysical, it's like uh, our brain like switching on a frequency, right, in the radio and then like just tuning into this astral music going on. I do wonder about that because if that's happening at that point, and it's interesting that it's right on the brink of surrender, mm. right? Right. That 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 happens. So it would be interesting to experiment with that. You know, I know sometimes people get downloads or, or songs in meditation too. Mm. So I don't know. I'm a big believer in the in the the theta sleep and the beta, all that kind of stuff. I think is really interesting. And so sometimes when I sleep, I'll play a recording of my own voice. Oh yeah. Saying affirmations or whatever. And um, I think you know, our brain is definitely consciously listening. Yeah. So I just find that fascinating. No, no, absolutely. No, there's, there's always something going on in that brain. A lot of times unconsciously. So yeah, there's a whole world yeah. behind the curtain there. That's, that's wild. I, I haven't talked to anybody else that's experienced that. Well, I think it happens probably more likely to, to people who are really kind of in music, you know, either as, as creators of music or performers of music. But what always just gets me is that it's something I haven't heard before. Yeah. It's just like something new. And it's like, where is it? Ah, this sounds really cool. Totally. Yeah. If we could record that in our brains, maybe someday with Neuralink. <laughs> ah, <right. laughs> hey, if that's, if that's what the point of Neuralink was, I'd be the first to sign up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Crazy. We're going to take a little break from this colorful conversation to listen to a very special song Leah sent me a few days after we recorded this episode. In our talk, we had mentioned the song Vincent, Starry Starry Night, by Don McLean, which then compelled Leah to spontaneously record her own unplugged version of the song in her hotel room, on a laptop and microphone with just a guitar and her voice. I had no idea she was going to do this, but for anyone who has enjoyed the Vincent series, this is something extra special. You're gonna wanna take a moment with this one. Be sure to send your thanks to La Freak herself on Instagram. Here's an impromptu cover of the song Vincent by La Freak. Starry, starry night Paints your palette Blue and gray 
Look out on a summer's day With eyes that know the darkness in my soul Shadows on the hills Sketch the trees and the daffodils Catch the breeze and the winter chills And colors on the snowy linen land And now I understand What you try to say to me How you suffered for your sanity How you try to set them free They would not listen, they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen now Starry, starry night Flame and flowers that brightly blaze Swirling clouds and violet haze Reflect in Vincent's eyes of china blue Colors change in hue Morning fields of amber grain Weathered faces lined in pain Are soothed beneath the artist's loving hand And now I What you tried to say to me How you suffered for your sanity How you tried to set them free They would not listen, they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen Could not love you But still your love was true And when no hope was left inside On that starry, starry night You took your life as lovers often do But I could have told you, Vincent This world was never meant for one As beautiful as you Starry, starry night Portraits hung in empty halls Frameless heads on nameless walls With eyes that watch the world and can't forget Like the strangers that you've met The ragged man in ragged clothes The silver thorn, the bloody rose Lie crushed and broken on the virgin snow And now I think I know What you tried to say to me How you suffered for your sanity How you tried to set them free They 
not listening still Perhaps they never I'm not crying, you're crying. Uh, if you enjoyed that spur-of-the-moment cover, show LaFreak some love. Find her on social media or Spotify. Now, back to our conversation. Uh, there's something I'm exploring lately in a little mini-series or mini-episodes series I'm doing for the show, which has to do with this theme that art is dangerous. Mm. And it's a very broad umbrella, obviously. Uh, you can unpack that quite a bit. There's, there's people who will certainly disagree with that term or that phrase. But as an example, I, I know that you have at least one story that matches up with the art is dangerous, unless you have a few that you're thinking of. But there was, there was one that I recall you telling me about uh, a photo shoot you were doing for one of the song releases where you were hanging upside down, was it? Uh, yeah. In rope suspension? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that matches up with Art is Dangerous, right? Can you, t can you talk about that one? Yeah, that was for the first single I ever released as La Freak. It's called Moonlight. So if you go on my Spotify, you can see it's me hanging in shibari rope, which is a very classic form of uh, rope tying from Japan. And I've always been fascinated by it. I tried it several times and I found the relationship between the tire and the tie to be really, really beautiful because there is um, also that form of surrender in, in Shibari and trust. So I wanted the album cover, cover to be, you know, really subversive as Le Freak likes to do. <laughs> and I had my friend tie me he's a professional tire and we also shot a music video that day so of course I had no idea it was my first music video that when they're setting up the lighting it can sometimes take 30 minutes mm. and then they ch change positions and it takes another 30 minutes so they left me hanging <laughs> for probably I mean an hour you know all together oh no and you're not supposed to be up there that long right. so I was in so much pain aye, aye, aye. and it was like I, I think uh we definitely should have had somebody on set that was like <laughs> looking out for that but we were all going we just have to get the shot we have to get the shot so um I would say art is definitely dangerous <laughs> nice yes I got Le Freak's yeah. confirmation on my thesis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did, did you end up having uh, rope burns or anything per like that took a few days for it to go away, some black and blues or anything? Oh, yeah. I think I had some bruises and some, some rope burn. But, you know, it's all part of, part of the art form. And I'm really fascinated by... Um, What's the artist's name who had, um, she's done so many public art pieces where she just looks, stares at people in the eyes and... Marina, Marina um, Abramovich. Yeah, mm -hmm. she's so interesting in that one experiment she did where she, you, you know, she put a gun out and crayons and a balloon and, and she let people just do whatever they wanted to her. Mm. You know, that is such a fascinating experiment to me because, you know, you're you're allowing people to kind of have ownership of your body. And once again, it, it goes back to that form of surrender and vulnerability. 
So I wanted to kind of display that in in the vulnerability of just hanging in the rope. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a provocative and it's a compelling image. It works very, very well. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. I mean, as as all of your cover art does and, and your songs do as well. Yeah, Marina, very, very interesting career. I went to a retrospective of her work at the Museum of Modern Art a few years back. And I remember there was one that really struck me as well. It, it was, had an element of self-harm involved. I believe she was whipping herself, like the way that old mm-hmm. monks used to do, self-flagellation. Mm-hmm. And it, she was causing her skin to bleed and all this stuff. And I was like, whoa, okay, this, she's, she's intense. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I, I start, she's intense. start paying attention to her. That's kind of, that was my introduction to her, was this retrospective of all of her stuff. And I was like, wow, this is good stuff. Yeah, and I'll never forget the story of her and her ex-partner who agreed to meet. They they walked the wall of China and agreed to meet in the middle to finally end their relationship Yeah, in this very beautiful, conscious way. And I, I think of that a lot with partnerships and how um, it can be like a, a very beautiful understanding between the two of you and this, this long journey. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, it's heavily yeah. symbolic, definitely. Yeah. So... On that topic of art is dangerous, perhaps to bookend it, I had remembered the other day something. When we had filmed the Bloodlust uh, music video, there was a moment where you stabbed the switchblade into the table. I'm sure you remember. Uh-huh. And, and the idea was we wanted it to stay, right? So we had to take a few takes of it. And you were totally game for all of this. You, were, you weren't questioning at all. <laughs> and looking back now, that I realized that was actually horribly, terribly unsafe. <laughs> Not only because it was like a real blade, it wasn't even like a dull blade. And we didn't like pre-drill any hole into the table. We actually were stabbing it in. Yeah. But later on, about a music video later or so, I was in the woods uh, doing another one that was was revisiting some of those same symbols. And one of them was the same switchblade. And so I I had the video rolling. I stabbed it into the table and the switchblade closed on my hand. (gasps) It closed the other way. And so it cut into my finger. Ah. Oh. And yeah. And I was, at the time for, for that scene, I was just shooting it by myself in the woods. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> so I had to Oh, obviously... my God. Did you get medical help? No. Luckily, you know, I tended to it and I didn't need stitches. But then it immediately flashed back to when you were doing it. And I was like, oh, my God. Imagine if that would have happened to Leah when she was stabbing the table. Oh, my God. I've been like, oh, damn it. Was that the time that you got found by the police or something? Yeah, I was shooting in these woods. Yeah, that was uh, another incident in that same music video where someone had called an emergency to the police saying that I had taken a rifle out of my car and run back into the woods with it. Oh, my God. And the whole scene was just like ready for a disaster because we had I was there with a friend we had the gas mask we had a shovel we had uh oh my god we had the switchblade for we had a dining room table uh, set up in the woods yeah no the 10 cops just descended on us it was it was a scene it was definitely a scene once again we can reiterate that art is dangerous <laughs> That is wild. It actually gives me a memory of um, there was a scene in our music video, Bloodlust, where I was with my friend who was playing my partner in the music video and we were in the cemetery filming and they closed and we were shut inside (laughs) and we had to basically jump the gate 
to the cemetery with these pointy ass, you know, steel bars. Yes. Yeah. And we were both wearing skirts, just trying, <laughs> trying to break out of this cemetery. Yeah, no, those... It was definitely... Yeah, sorry to interrupt. No, I was going to say, those gates are high, because I've had to jump them once or twice myself before. Those are high. <laughs> yeah, it was an experience, for sure. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know you guys uh, got locked in the cemetery. The, the Greenwood, right? <laughs> Yeah, we got locked in the cemetery, which is kind of a cool story, but we were like, oh my God, if they find us in here and we're trapped, yes. that's going to be interesting. Yeah, uh, and then you'd have to explain that you're there for art, right? <laughs> yeah, we're here for our art. <laughs> yes, yes. So just back to your music, let's say, uh, before we uh, go too crazy on other tangents. In these new tracks you're releasing for your upcoming EP, I get the sense that you're coming out swinging and uh, the, the, the types of vocals that you're doing are, are more bold, you could say, than your first EP. So is that a conscious choice? Do you feel more confident? Is there something that you feel like you're trying to prove? Can, can you speak on that? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I released my first record, Weird Awakenings, in 2018, and I got really incredible response from it. I've had a couple great placements on Riverdale and Playboy and stuff like that. But one of the things and forms of feedback that people were saying to me is that they felt like I wasn't really using my voice in the way that they thought or that they knew was possible. Hmm. And if you see me live, you'll see that the tracks from that EP are pretty different live because I'm a, I'm a big performer. I like to sing out. I like to use my voice. And so I wanted to, with this EP kind of show what I can really do and show, or maybe make more of a connection between my live performance and the tracks mm. um, because I felt like there was such a vast difference. So with this, I just wanted to kind of come out swinging and, and, right. you know, with, with loud, it has kind of a grungy element, and I feel like I'm really singing out on that one. And then the the title track, Showgirl, is really in your face. And I just felt like I wanted to explore that side of myself. Yeah, you know, it definitely comes across as as a certain boldness, and and I really love it. Thank you. It, it doesn't mean, of course, you shouldn't write any of of the other intimate stuff that that you're so good at too, but it's nice to see some some little things kind of adapting or changing anytime an artist releases stuff. Yeah, um, it's interesting because I've, I've been feeling very pulled to create, uh, I, I would like to make my first album and that's something that I'm working towards right now is writing the tracks for that. But for that album, I've been feeling very pulled to make it incredibly intimate. Mm. And then I have another idea for an EP that's completely the opposite and more in, in the vein of this album that I'm, or this EP that I'm releasing now. So it's interesting what pulls us as artists and what intrigues us. And I'm happy that nowadays it seems like, you know, genre is kind of dead. There's, you know, we have people like Billie Eilish that are all over the map and... Right. That's kind of what I ascribe to. I want people to just be on this journey with me as an artist rather than expecting one genre from me. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's really well said. It seems like genre, the idea of it is, is just kind of dead. 
and you can have the potential to be a lot more fluid with things. Even someone like Olivia Rodrigo releasing a track that sounds like a Paramore track, but then releasing a track that just sounds like an intimate pop track, and mm-hmm. the two just playing side by side, and, and listeners just being like, yeah, all right, this works. I was really inspired by that album, actually. I listened to the whole thing on my drive back um, from LA to Vegas, and first of all, I've been getting really back into full albums lately, and I think it's really cool mm. to listen to the track listing as the artist intended it. And when I listened to it, I thought, you know, this is this young girl that's really saying something. She's been through heartbreak and she she created this album in a way that she wanted others to hear it. And it's it's not all cohesive because as a teenager and as a young woman, your thoughts aren't con- cohesive all the time, you know? Right. So it's like, I, I appreciated the fact that she's rocking out on one track and, and sat on another. And, you know, I love that. Yeah, yeah, no, totally, totally. I get it too. Yeah. So... On the topic of w- when you're writing some of your songs and working on them, there's, there's something that my brain does that I find very effective. Like when I'm, when I'm writing music that I know is going to be played by someone, uh, as I'm writing it, I kind of imagine them playing it or I imagine it being played on stage. And for some reason, when, when I shift into a perspective of either somebody else playing it or it being in front of an audience and what does it sound like, it changes it and like it comes out easier in a weird way. So I wonder when you're working on stuff, when you're working on music, do you imagine yourself on stage singing it in front of a stadium, in front of a few people? Does that ever enter into your creative process, that kind of perspective play? It definitely does. I'm really curious to see how loud translates live. It's definitely my most bombastic song. And I have a show uh, on Wednesday in LA where I'll be performing that for the first time. But when I wrote it, I was thinking, oh my God, this is going to be wild live. (laughs) Um, And then conversely, this track that I was telling you about that I'm envisioning with strings, I love to picture it with, you know, let's say the New York Philharmonic or whatever, just being able to stand up there with one spotlight and seeing that visually really inspires me as well. Yeah, no, I think there is something to that uh, in terms of the creative process, at least in terms of my musical experiences. Imagining the perspective or the ultimate goal of of the the context that someone hears it in kind of changes it in a way. It it, it alters what it becomes or what it's becoming in in its way to getting there. It's interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah, so unique and fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I have a question for you that I think I'd like to know, which is, you know, I listened to your podcast and I thought it was really fascinating because you, you do everything. You edit the podcast, you create all the music, you do all the research. I was wondering what your process is for that because, you know, not only do you do the research, but it, you kind of did some sleuthing in the, in the Vincent episode where you really went through the letters and tried to figure out when he was in the asylum and when he was painting. And I just thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, thank you for noticing that. I mean, one of the things that has always attracted me about any kind of creative work is when it's all-consuming, when it's just something monumental or something that is going to require me to dive into it and, and be consumed by it, in a sense, as, as I try to tackle it. So when I was working as, as a composer and a film composer, 
I enjoyed that element of the challenge of like scoring a feature film because a feature film is, is a very ambitious task for one person to try to score. And so this is kind of similar. I, I should by now probably be having some assistance or something on, on some elements <laughs> of, of the production, but I do enjoy that all-consuming nature of it. Yeah. Yeah. You might have some of the same kind of experiences, I don't know, in your process. Yeah, I think something that's all-consuming as an artist is definitely... I think very attractive because it feels like, you know, there's, there's nothing else but that in your life. And I feel like Le Freak for me was kind of a way of, of emulating that because it felt like this larger than life caricature that I could represent myself as instead of just Leah Capelli on an acoustic guitar. Right. I wanted something that was like, like you were saying, all consuming and, and visually intriguing and all the things yeah, yeah, no, I, I found very similar liberty in taking on this kind of alias that I was using for a while there of MJ Dorian, which I now use in the podcast, but when I was using it for, for dark pop stuff and dark art, I felt more confident in the liberty to, to put really weird and dark shit out there for people to see and consume. Yeah. Where if it would have just been under my, my legal name and my family was like following me or whatever and people who I teach and their parents were following me, it, would, it just it doesn't work. It just doesn't work, you know? I felt like that too. It, it is a nice siphon to, to kind of just pour everything into and, and just see what comes out because you don't have the pressure of being you, you know? Yeah which is really nice. But it, but then again, you know, like we were saying before, with such intimacy and such vulnerable lyrics, you have to toe the line because it is you, but you're still portraying this caricature. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of brings me back to uh, your appreciation of Nick Cave, which kind of parallels my own appreciation of him and his career. But it makes me wonder how much is Nick Cave that to Nick Cave or how much of it is him, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I listened to this interesting Billie Eilish interview where she said she kind of stopped feeling like herself. Mm. And she she was almost starting to feel like separate from the entity of Billie Eilish, mm. which I think is really fascinating because I think when you get to that uh, level of being known for, for one type of person or for this character that you are and you have all these different layers and facets of who you are behind closed doors, it must be very surreal, especially for Nick who is known as, you know, this dark person, but I'm sure behind closed doors is potentially quite normal. <laughs> right. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> In a way, it's part of this art is dangerous thing. There was an element that I've been exploring with that, which is that artists or creatives in general, uh, they have the liberty to live and function outside of society's expectations and limits. And by creating through an alias, you have even less expectations and limits to function in like now it's you you have the liberty to get even stranger in a sense yeah that's what I think is so fascinating about art is you don't have to confine yourself to rules or anything like that I mean I the first person that popped in my mind when you were saying that was Grimes who really has redefined herself over the last 10 years or so that she's been releasing music and she is just such a different person and she marches to the beat of her own drum and just I think doesn't care what society thinks of her you know yeah yeah no for sure it's a wonderful place to be <laughs> as an artist as yeah, an artist absolutely. N- not as a plumber 
Yeah, exactly. We, we say this and then, you know, I obsess over numbers or I go, oh my God, my song didn't get the streams I wanted or my likes on Instagram or something. And then, and then you get brought back to that fear-based mentality, but really that's where you should be is just not caring what anybody else thinks. Right, right. I mean, that's a whole nother area that we should discuss, but unfortunately we got to wrap up and I, I had all this other technical, more logistical, what is it like as an artist in social media? You hate it, you love it. Like <laughs> all this other boring garbage that obviously we spoke a lot about more exciting and deep dive kind of stuff. So I'm very happy that we, we dove deep with a lot of our topics. Me too. Yeah, yeah. I think we should definitely do this again. Yeah, we'll have a part two with all the, all the logistical aspects. <laughs> <laughs> all the boring crap. <laughs> But as a way to wrap up, where can everybody find you and follow you and all that stuff? Yeah, you can find me on all socials at L-F-R-E-A-Q. It's L and then Freak with a Q. And you can find me on Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal. It's L apostrophe Freak with a Q. So yeah, come find me, come listen to my music and come connect with me on Instagram. Yeah, definitely check her out. Check her out on YouTube as well and... One of those videos I helped direct, so I'm very proud of that. Yeah. And again, I'm honored that you took the time to be on the show, and I very, very much enjoyed it. Hope we get to do it again. And thank you, LaFreak. Thank you, Leah. Thanks, MJ. I hope we get to do it, too. Till next time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was our conversation. I'm really glad I had a chance to explore some of these topics with Leah, I think the flow of the conversation allowed us to touch on a lot of thoughtful insights which you never hear about in these types of interview segments. Here are some of those things to reflect on. Can you create meaningful work without relying on despair and depression in your creative process? Both Lafrique and MJ think you can. We also covered the idea of getting through the shit to get to the gold. This is something that is always ever-present in my mind when I'm working through initial seeds of ideas. Which brought us to the idea of creativity as a cumulative process. It's very rare that an idea just appears out of thin air without the context of a hundred other ideas and attempts that inform it. We explored Leah's songwriting process, her inclination to write poetry first, also the exploration of writing in new environments as a way to spur ideas. I like that one. We talked about the length of time a song takes, from the initial seed idea to production, and found out that can vary from one month to two years. Finally, we stumbled on the strange phenomenon of hearing music on the cusp of sleep. That was a fun segment. Have you ever had that experience before? In closing, go follow Lafreak on Instagram or TikTok and listen to her new album, Showgirl. It's available on Spotify and your favorite music apps. All the links for those things are in the episode description. As we wrap up, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters. The thank yous for our first tier ShadowFam patrons are now in written form in the episode details. Thank you guys, I appreciate the support. Shout out to my ShadowFam Plus tier supporters, Ozzy, Blake Huggins, Frank Warren, Hilda, James S.Z., Jay Booth, Joseph Levdahl, Logan Kshivitsky, Louise Benton, and Michael Paisano. You guys rock and help me keep the lights on. And big thank you to my Karma Coma supporters, Alina, Christelle82, Dina Sun, 
Don Frias, Isaac Abedzade, Jenny Sines, Julio Chavez, Chris with a K, Misha, Michael Thompson, Miss Alex Kennedy, Mona Oman, and Sam McCohey. Thank you so much, guys. You really keep this ship afloat. Finally, thank you to everyone who listens to the show, reaches out to me in emails, shares it with friends. It all really is tremendous, and that is the number one way to help keep this show growing. Just share it with someone. The next long-form narrative episode will be a return to Carl Jung, Red Book Part 3. We have some unfinished business with The Good Doctor. Catch up on parts one and two of that series in the podcast feed to get ready for that. Those are episodes 11 and 12. And be sure to click the bell for Creative Codex in your podcast player to get notified the moment that is released. Until next time, remember, sometimes you gotta dig through the shit to get to the gold. Dig deep, my friends. (laughs) 